Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Abe and Aaron from the film Primer. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest John Bell. Welcome back, John. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Uh, as I noted, we're discussing the film Primer, which is a 2004 science fiction film about a pair of engineers who create a mass reduction machine, but then discover the real significance of their invention is an unintended side effect. It was written and directed by Shane Carruth, and it stars Shane Carruth as Aaron and David Sullivan as Abe. John, I think I had heard of this film only by its reputation of being um, somewhat incomprehensible, <laughs> but also <laughs> captivating. Yeah, that you're kind of drawn in, but by the end, you're still not quite sure what it is that you just watched. And I had never watched it until you asked if we could cover it for this, uh, for, you know, for this episode. So thank you, because I really did enjoy watching it. And I think I was so on guard to be confused that I was waiting for the f- confusion to come. And it really doesn't come for about 90% of the film, right? <laughs> it's, it's like just in the very tail end, you start to, things start to spin and you're like, wait, what? Hold on, hold on. <laughs> what exactly is, is happening uh, in the narrative itself. Um, but the beginning, it really is a very linear, at least by appearance, <laughs> a very linear, mm-hmm. pretty straightforward story that you're consuming. And I was so, um, my, you know, my guards were so up. I was just waiting for the chaos. And then it did come and it delivered everything that I've been kind of, I'd sensed about it from its reputation. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's not a long film, but so much happens in such a short time that it almost feels like it is after you've seen it. Like it goes fast when you're watching it, but then you try to digest it afterwards and it's like, Whoa, what, what, what all just happened? Um, so yeah, I, I think the narrative becomes something of a, um, like a tangled string and you don't know it until the end. And so at that point you see the tangled mess and you're trying to like pull it apart. And it feels like there was so much more than what we actually had. And it's about 80 minutes, right? It's, it is a yeah. pretty quick film. Yeah. It's less than 80 minutes. And I think that running time includes the shortest credits I've ever seen. <laughs> it's just in Caruth's name over and over. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Because he but, also uh, did the music for it. I, he I did edited the music. It. He edited it. Uh, he wrote it. He wasn't the camera operator, but he like planned all the shots and stuff. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I came to it um, my freshman year of college, I was living at home and commuting to campus. There was about uh, a 20 minute drive away. And since I was a freshman, I didn't get the best choice of classes. And I often had a gap in my schedule. And when I didn't have homework to do, sometimes I would either go to the library and watch movies, or occasionally if I had the money, would go down to the movie theater and watch movies. And this is one that I just was like, huh, that's a cool poster. I'll go see that at the the local independent movie theater. And I watched it with, I think, two other people at a matinee um, and was just baffled, but, but also just couldn't wait to see it again. I don't think I saw it again in the theater, but I bought the DVD immediately as soon as I could. And I've seen it uh, I don't know. It's probably right up there with the Star Wars trilogy in terms of films that I've seen the most. Yeah. And it was interesting. Um, like it's rated R. There's not much. <laughs> Is it see. rated R? I thought it was rated yeah, well, PG-13. It said R when it, when it popped up on the DVD. And it said like oh. for some language, there's um, like one slur that's yeah. in there. And that's about it. Um, which 
I'm not trying to excuse a slur. I just was expecting a bit more <laughs> when it said it was rated R for language. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it definitely feels PG to PG 13, <laughs> you know, for, for the bulk of it. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if it was maybe some of the, cause sometimes you get a rating where it's just like, this is so, in, um, like teenagers aren't ready for this. <laughs> so they slap an R on it. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, if nothing it, else, it probably, I, I mean, it was a tiny independent film. There wasn't going to be tons of teenagers going to see it anyway, but yeah. they probably well, and, wouldn't and, have had a good time. <laughs> and, 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 um, as far as like marketing and everything, like there, there was no studio behind it to argue for a PG 13 and say, this will be more marketable. It was just yeah. like, you know, it came back as ours. Like, okay, well it's our, and we're moving forward. I, I don't think it deserved an R rating. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you, you mentioned that you watched this in an independent film and you note this in the trivia, but it was as independent a film as it can be <laughs> pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, you said the budget was only $7,000 for the entire project. That's correct. Yeah. Um, which she, the director has said basically covered camera rental and film development. And this was done on actual film, film, not was. digital. Uh, you yep. know, now independent filmmaking has, the cost has come down because, so much of the editing equipment and also the, the physical, you know, the, the storing it on di- digitally and rather than on an actual film is so much cheaper. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so they shot it on super 16 film um, in 2001. I am almost positive. It was pre nine 11. There's a one brief scene shot inside the airport that they didn't have permission to film that I don't think they could do post nine 11. And uh, oh, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't, well, I don't so, think you'd even position the characters there because it's like in the uh, uh, what, what's it, it's in the lobby right before you get on the plane is where they have a yeah. conversation. But one of them is not getting on the plane, which yep. just isn't done anymore. Yep. But uh, so yeah, so the the film um, they blew it up to thirty five millimeter. In the commentary, uh, the director talks about how it got a little bit grainier in in the process, and there was a way to fix it, but it cost too much money, so they couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh yeah, the other thing I was gonna say. So they shot it in 2001. It released in 2004. So it wasn't done until late 2003, and then showed at Sundance in early 2004. Uh, it and then yeah, some of the other trivia about it, it won the Grand Jury Dramatic Prize and the Alfred P. Sloan Prize, which is for like science and technology centered films at Sundance in 2004. Yeah. Um, yeah, the just hearing about how they made it, um, the engineering in the film at the beginning, it's like uh, in the family garage, we're scraping together parts and getting materials from anything, including like stealing precious metals from cars, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like anything. And it was like guerrilla engineering in order to build the device in the in the film itself. And it sounds like it was just guerrilla filmmaking um, yeah. is what they had to do in order to, to to make this. And as part of that, which is something I don't think people always appreciate and and probably isn't a part of guerrilla filmmaking anymore, but it's very often you get one take because that's all the film we have. Um, oh yeah. You know, this is, um, we, we are planning everything and we're doing it once and yep. uh, we cannot afford a second take because we physically do not have as much enough film to be able to do that. And um, even though this was, um, you know, from what from what I saw, uh, like Caruth's first first project, there's some really interesting camera angles and choices that are done throughout. And I was thinking like, oh, like they had to know exactly what lighting to have, where the camera was in order to get that shot. Um, and then knowing that they only did it once, it's like, OK, that's um, some impressive filmmaking that, that had, yeah. you know, had to be made. But he said that's part of the reason why it took two years to edit 
because so much of it, they, they did only have one take and, you know, they, he, you can see him actually say cut under his breath a few times. Um, and he had to leave that in there and just cut the sound because they needed that extra second to make it feel right in the edit for the, um, the rhythm of the scene. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think he said there's one or two shots that they did in more than one take. And I, I, I haven't heard this uh, from a definitive source, but there's a lot of jump cuts in the film that I, mm-hmm. I suspect were not planned. <laughs> I think they work because yeah. you're supposed to feel disoriented, but I, yes. I think those might've been like, uh, this scene isn't working. We, we're going to have to jump cut or, it. So let's could, find we, somewhere we where it works. We effect and it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cause there's like a moment where like the machine is, is working for the first time and they're lifting the cover and it just cuts away. I'm like, I don't think they were able to get anything they thought was usable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like you said, it works for the feeling of it. Cause like we, we then cut to a character who's like disoriented and, and waking up and we we're kind of there with them. Like, wait, wait, what, what just happened? Yeah. Um, and so it doesn't feel um, like they're working within the constraints they have, but they're making those constraints become a strength in the film instead of feeling like a weakness. Yeah, absolutely. It's got a definite low budget aesthetic, but it, it like you said, it plays right into the low budget uh, guerrilla engineer feel of the film. <laughs> and just the last bit of trivia, I was looking up Caruth's career because I'm like, wow, he must have had a lot of buzz. And he did. And uh, he just has not had as much of a career as you might have hoped with seeing the talent that he has in this because of some choices in his personal life that has had him removed some from, from some projects. And so this is yet another unfortunate instance where we got to separate the art from the artist a little bit and try and uh, uh, talk about this film and recognize that maybe Caruth has made some life choices that we wish he had not. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, before we move on to the summary, which I am so grateful that you offered to write the summary, John, <laughs> because yeah, I mean, you've watched this film several times. I've only watched it once in preparation for this. I didn't have time to like, I, I skipped around to a few parts to make sure I was grasping stuff and watching it, but I was not able to, I was not able to watch the whole thing a second time. I watched the finale a, a couple times to try and make sure I was in my, in my head had sorted out what was going on. Um, but this is an intense summary. So I look forward to, to, to hearing uh, how you've crafted it. Uh, but we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode and for listening. And if you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special podcasts, which are shorter episodes, which should talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the spoiler summary. And uh, John, I will let you take that away. And... Um, I know this can be a little bit intense, so I will take over the discussion as soon as you wrap up so you can catch your breath again. (laughs) All right, here we go. Four men wearing dress shirts, ties, and slacks are working in a suburban garage trying to make some kind of equipment while we hear a phone ring. Then a voice on the other end of the call explained that he will read his statement and we are not to interrupt. As the voiceover ends, the, the four men are sitting around a kitchen table arguing about what to work on next. It becomes clear that they are engineers moonlighting, trying to build some kind of product that they can go to market with, and that they have been trying for some time. They argue about what to do next, and a rift forms with Abe and Aaron wanting to go one direction, but Robert and Philip wanting to do something completely different. Aaron and Abe uh, then discuss technical details of how they hope their idea will work uh, while they are alone, as they scrounge up raw materials, including the catalytic converter from Abe's car for its palladium and copper tubing and freon from his fridge. 
Sometime later in the garage, they have completed making some time of some, some type of apparatus. Abe grabs uh, the tiny scraps of paper uh, from a hole puncher and drops them over the machine. They float slowly down as if in low gravity. Next, they enclose the apparatus for safety and put a kid's uh, weeble toy inside and observe the weight decreasing by about 10% on the readout of the digital scale. But the box starts to shake and there's a noise and a flash before it stops suddenly uh, as some part of the power supply has blown out. We cut to Abe asleep on the floor in his apartment, still this in his is what, shirt This is tie. the main cut that felt yeah. like <laughs> maybe they couldn't get what they were looking for. <laughs> yeah, there, uh, there's a little black spot there. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Abe is awoken by a phone call from Aaron, who tells him that it's 7 p.m. and that he is coming over. Once there, he tells Abe they need to get a steak, at which point Abe realizes that Aaron must have made a breakthrough. They go back to the garage and Aaron shows how he has gotten the machine stable by slowly ramping up the power. They lock the garage up so uh, Philip and Robert can't get in and they go for their stake. Uh, the voiceover from the phone call at the beginning informs us that they don't want to rush to sell something that they don't fully understand and they need to maintain a relationship with the man who is their best source of eventual funding, Thomas Granger, who is Abe's girlfriend's dad. Several months pass with little progress. We see Abe on a roof looking down at Aaron sitting on a bench in a business park. Abe convinces Aaron to skip work for the afternoon by promising to show him the most important thing that any living organism has ever seen. Abe takes Aaron to two different experts who explain that, that the film that has grown on the Weeble toy they were used, using for testing is a protein from a fungus. It's not remarkable in any way, but the amount that it was grown should take months to grow, though Abe says he was cleaning it every few days. Aaron is bewildered at this point and thinks the machine is an incubator for fungus, but Abe takes him back to the garage where he has him put his watch in the machine. The watch goes into the machine and when pulled out, it shows that over 22 hours have passed. Abe explains how when the machine is turned on, it creates a sort of loop with an A end created at startup and a B end at shutdown. Things caught in the parabolic loop between the two ends and without any influence eventually exit at the B end after going back and forth between the two about 1300 times. As Aaron is digesting this information, he realizes Abe wants to make a larger version of the machine. Abe takes Aaron to get a fountain drink at a gas station near a storage facility. There they see another Abe walking into the storage unit building as they sit across a field from it. They follow him inside and see that Abe has made two boxes big enough for a human inside in a climate-controlled storage unit. Aaron now understands the implications of what they have created, and he lays awake at night thinking about it. The two decide the next day to do the same thing that Abe did before, but together this time. They call in sick to work. They go to the storage unit. They set a timer to start the machines 15 minutes after they leave and drive to a hotel across town where they isolate themselves. They play board games and kill time for several hours at the hotel room, then go to the library and use the computers there to download stock data. They then return to the storage unit, turn off the boxes to create the end of the loop, and climb in as the boxes wind down. Once in the box, they set an alarm for six hours later, take some Dramamine, and try to sleep. When the time is up, they exit the boxes at the A end. It is now 8.15, when the 15 minute, uh, which is when the 15-minute timer ended and the boxes started up. They leave the storage unit 
and make the stock purchases they researched earlier and watch those purchases grow. Back at Aaron's house, Abe asks Aaron's wife, Kara, a hypothetical question about what she would do if money was no object. She said it's too hypothetical to even answer, but Aaron says he would punch a particular VC investor in the face. Later, when it's just the two of them again, they talk about how they could or couldn't do something like that, or if there would be a, if there would be a way to do something like that without permanently altering reality. Back at the garage sometime later, Abe lets Philip and Robert in after they've been locked out. They tell a very surprised Abe how Aaron confronted a gun-wielding party crasher at Philip's birthday party. That night, someone sets off a car alarm on Abe's street at 2 a.m. He wakes up and goes to Aaron's house to rouse him. Aaron says he wasn't really asleep, it was more of a nap, but the, and that he's getting used to the 36-hour days. Abe tells Aaron that they could get away with doing a trip right then to punch the VC investor if afterward they prevent the car alarm from going off so Abe never wakes up and they never have the conversation they're having right then. This is the point where I do start to think, okay, I'm getting, all right, am I following all of the logic <laughs> of time travel? <laughs> yeah, up to this point, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, go back in time, six hours, buy stock, profit. Mm-hmm. But now, yeah. At this yeah. point, it does get a little wibbly wobbly. <laughs> As they are driving to the storage unit, they notice that they are being followed by Thomas Granger in his car. He has three or four, a three or more day beard growth, even though he was clean shaven when Aaron saw him just hours before. They pull over, and Abe calls Granger's phone, pretending to be someone else with an emergency. Once he hear his vo- hears his voice, the Granger that is in the car behind them gets out and runs. They chase after him, and he collapses. Neither Abe nor Aaron can work out how Granger would have known about the boxes or imagine a scenario where their future selves would tell him. Given the situation of having a comatose double of Thomas Granger, Abe decides to use a third machine he had built and started before his trip with his first trip with Aaron. The voice on the phone call returns and refers to it as the failsafe. Abe uses the failsafe to go back four days in time to the day before he told Aaron and uses nitrous oxide to drug himself, the Abe that's already in that time before taking over for him. We then see the same shot as before of Abe on the roof looking down at Aaron on the park bench again. Abe approaches Aaron and has a disjointed conversation with him where Abe isn't asking any questions, but Aaron is giving the same responses as he did before. Abe collapses, and Aaron's earbud falls from his ear, playing a recording of the conversation they were supposed to be having. The voice on the phone explains that Aaron would then tell Abe that he noticed two storage units rented under Abe's name on the manifest, and when Aaron went to that second unit on his own, he knew exactly why the failsafe was there. He also explained that the boxes were modular and foldable, and one can be taken back within another that they are not one-time use only. The voice on the phone then tells us that he is one of these errands, and when he encountered another version of himself who had already recorded the day's conversations to get a three-second lead on the world and was well on a way to accomplishing his goals, he decided he could not stop him. This current Aaron and Abe then go to the birthday party where the gunman will come. Aaron confronts the gunman, stops him, and becomes a local hero. At this point, Abe decides that he can't tamper anymore, that he'll stay home and ensure that no one else can complete a working box, resorting to sabotage as necessary. Uh, This Aaron wants the opposite. 
and boards a plane for an unknown destination. The film ends with Aaron giving instruction to a hard hat to hard hat wearing workers in a large warehouse. Uh, those instructions being translated through a French interpreter. Thank you uh, for that summary, and it does help to solidify some of it. Though I will be honest, there are parts that I still am a little lost on, and I, I that's okay. Like I think that's part of this film where there is a sense that the storytellers know what was going on and they don't care if the audience is 100% there. They are not going to sugarcoat it. They're not going to make it easier to understand. And I think you see that from the very beginning, like with the math and the jargon that they use, mm-hmm. they do not simplify anything or like have the conversation with the, the outsider uh, where it's like, okay, let me tell you a simple version of this <laughs> or anything like that. They just don't do it. Yeah. Um, it's just like, try and keep up as best you can. And there's enough that is clear in the, tone and the story and uh, you know that th- that we're following it along closely enough that i never felt like it was so avant-garde it had no meaning but i also do feel like i don't quite have my finger on all of the logistics of time travel that this if, film presents if, if i can be honest writing this summary helped me understand things about this film that i didn't it not not even like intricate things just like plot points that i didn't fully grasp until today, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. but like you said, you don't really need to, because, um, I mean, the themes of the film that we'll uh, get into, they carry through regardless, you know, you don't have to understand yeah. that most of the science is at least sort of based in fact they're you know, their engineering stuff is pretty well researched and, um, the 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 mass reduction machine that they're building at the beginning actually does exist in the real world. It's just huge, and they were trying to find a way to shrink it. Um, but you don't need to really know any of that. It could be completely made up, and the story uh-huh. would still work. Yeah, and like I said, the ideas or the themes those still come through, even if you are a bit confused about the actual plot <laughs> um, yeah. that, that that we're given at the end. And also, I think interestingly enough, the the different motivations for the two characters also, um, you know, resonate, um, and why they end up on such different courses, like the, um, the tentativeness or the deliberateness of Abe versus the kind of Mm -hmm. brashness of Aaron. Um, you know, and that's where some of the tension and the conflict is coming from, not just the tampering with the laws of physics. (laughs) What are the (laughs) unintended consequences of time travel? Um, which, we've both probably consumed dozens of time travel stories that deal with it in different ways. Sometimes where you're like, that's not how it could possibly work. And other times where it's like, well, I guess it could work that way. Um, And this one is kind of like, I guess it could work that way, but I don't understand it. (laughs) Yeah. It's where I land. You sent me a, uh, a comic from, I think it was XKCD, right? The, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that was like the narrative threads of time travel movies and like how they jump around. Not even time travel movies oh, necessarily. Just, was, there's, there's Lord of the Rings trilogy. Okay. And you have, you know, the nine lines as they split up and, you know, they, uh, and it, it's nice and pretty there. And then there's, I think it's 12 angry men and there's just 12 lines that are parallel uh-huh. and close together the whole way across. There's one other one that's a big blockbuster and then it's primer and it just looks like a bowl of spaghetti. Yeah, he just scribbled all over <laughs> the, the panel. <laughs> like, this is this is what this is. Because it's not until you get to the end of the film that you discover you've been watching part of the time loop. Yeah. Um, like from, from the very beginning, uh, almost it was, um, you know, I don't know how we want to term it like a doppelganger or like, like one of the other versions <laughs> um, yeah. has been with us. In and the movie, it, they call them doubles, but 
yeah. Uh, yeah. The other version of the person that, mm-hmm. yeah. And we think we're kind of following this whole story progressively. And from their point of view, linearly, but, but we have not been. And that mm-hmm. is a pretty amazing trick to pull off. Again, not in a way that I feel like every puzzle piece now fits perfectly for me as the viewer, but in a way where I can appreciate what they just did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it was, I, I don't know if I've ever sat through a movie where I immediately wanted to watch it again. Usually it's like, I really like that. And maybe someday I'll watch it again. But this is like, oh, I wish I could go back and see immediately what, <laughs> so many things that would make more sense now. Yeah. And I, I, when you get like short stories, very often we'll have like the twist ending where you like rethink everything that just came before. Occasionally you get that uh, in a film, you know, something like Sixth Sense famously does this, um, that where you like have to reconsider what you as an audience were receiving and knowing that what you were receiving was false from the, the way that we thought we had it. And now at the end, we can see the truth of it all. And primers, I, I, you know, attempting to pull off that that similar thing, and I think it's successful um, in in how you feel uh, leaving it. That that oh that that twist was really interesting, um, but it's not something like um, you know an occurrence in Elk Creek Bridge where you're like oh he's dead the whole time, <laughs> you know this, <laughs> this was his life flashing before his eyes, uh, right. you know, and and you get it all. He's like okay, I've got it. <laughs> I understand what Ambrose Spears was doing here. This is still like mm, what am I supposed to take in terms of the mechanics of time travel? I don't know. Um, and I, we're not going to be able to crack that, I think. And there's an interesting quote from uh, a Chuck Klosterman essay about this that I came across when I was looking some stuff up. And he says, primer is hopelessly confusing and grows more and more Byzantine as it unravels. I've watched it seven or eight times and I still don't know what happened, but he says, it's the finest movie about time travel he's ever seen because of its realism. He says, it's not that the time machine seems more realistic. It's that the time travelers themselves seem more believable. They talk and act and think like the kind of people who might accidentally figure out how to move through time, which is why it's the best depiction we have of the ethical quandaries that might result from such a discovery. And in terms of those ethical quandaries, Closerman concludes the lesson of primer regarding time travel is that it's too important to use only for money, but too dangerous to use for anything else. Yeah, I, and I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the, uh, like they try and find the non-disruptive way to get rich quick. <laughs> it's like, well, we know we can't mess with the timeline too much. Uh, well, but if we do these particular stocks and just purchase them day trading and selling by the end of the day, we see which ones have risen will just continually be making money. And um, I didn't. And, and also this, they, they make their rules for themselves that we can't buy enough of the stock that we're the ones manipulating the price. Um, I didn't really touch on this on the summary because it was already so long. But one of the things that you, you learn about the character, one of the ways you learn about the characters is that those are essentially Abe's rules. And Aaron follows along because he's the new guy essentially. Mm-hmm. But Abe's the one who is being extra cautious, you know, only looking for um, mid cap funds that are big enough that their trades won't be a drop in the bucket compared to everything else. And um, is trying to be so, so cautious. At one point, there's there's a couple frames of like a binder sheet of paper that are like Abe's rules for not messing up the space-time continuum. Or, it doesn't say that, but like <laughs> he, he, he has clearly thought about it a lot. And then Aaron learns about it and of course is bewildered, but he doesn't 
stop to slow down much. He is like full on, like, how can I use this to do everything that I've ever wanted to do? And I think him going along with Abe initially is really just so he doesn't get cut out of this. <laughs> it's like, he's trying to, <laughs> he's trying to get his mind around it so that he can really carry out his schemes. He, and yeah. he wants Abe to think he's following all the rules because he respects Abe's rules. I don't think he ever does. And yeah, the interesting thing is like, you never really know where that switches from him being following along to not get cut out to him pretending to follow along, but really being the puppet master. There's, mm-hmm. there's basically no way of knowing when that switch flips in terms of the, the linear playing of the movie. Um, and it's interesting to go back and try to think about that, but um yeah, it's it's just the the nature of those two characters being so different. The the one being extra cautious, the other one wanting to throw caution to the wind and use it for any advantage that he can. As and like I you said, it's the ethical it's the ethical question of the movie that makes it the best time travel movie. And I think for these kinds of stories that have the high concept, there are times where maybe movies swing for the high concept, and that's all that it has. And it can end up feeling very cold, um, like 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> to me, mm-hmm. like that is an interesting film, but it's not necessarily a film I enjoy. <laughs> I would uh, agree. <laughs> and, and it is all high concept stuff, but you're not rooted in like the conflict of, of humans. <laughs> it, it, it feels distant. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is going very strange, high concept, esoteric, really hard to wrap your heads around. But I'm I'm always following these two people that I understand their motivations and mm. I, you know I'm there with them. It's um, I've recently started rewatching Lost with our daughter. Okay, um, decide she's old enough. We can do Lost now. Uh, and I think it's a similar thing where there is so much bizarreness in what they do with the island and like really high concept fantasy and sci-fi stuff that they're going to play around with. And yet the reason I think the show is so compelling is they have strongly defined characters that are at odds with each other, even as they're moving towards the same goal. <laughs> like they have different motivations for why they're moving towards those goals. And that's where a lot of the fascination comes in is the strength of the characters, not the mystery of the wonky high concept stuff of the island. Hmm. I I haven't watched Lost all the way through, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people complain about the final season. I'm there the whole way. I'm with them. I yeah. think it's, I think it's excellently done. I probably watched but. primer too many times. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I, I think these are, they're, they're coming out around the same time, right? So lost, I mean, huge budget, biggest budget in television mm-hmm. when it was coming out, but it's 2004, I think is when it starts. Uh, and so, and so yeah, coming out around the same time. And for both those projects, I, I think, what resonates or, or lingers with me after I've digested the, the, you know, the big idea behind it is the characters themselves. Yeah. I and think so there's for, a little for any bit... writers who are like rooting a story in those kinds of like mind bending concepts, make sure you got characters that, <laughs> that can carry the story. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a little bit of the, the, uh, JJ Abrams concept of the, the secret box that you never mm-hmm. quite find out what's in that, uh, I think he talked about that in his Ted talk. Yes. I think there's a little bit of that, the magic box. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit of that here too, where it's, there's, there's some things like I mentioned that you, you'd never quite figure out and are maybe not 
meant to be figured out, like, but um, are interesting to think about that keep you interested in addition to the characters Mm -hmm. being interesting. And I think, I don't know if it's because of the dialogue or the, um, like the surety of every shot um, that that we have in it. I have the sense that the the writers knew (laughs) or or say, you know, the the writer, director and actors, like they understood Mm -hmm. uh, what, what was happening even if we as an audience never get it fully revealed. And I, and that is definitely a criticism. JJ Abrams is sometimes it's just feels like, well, you just aren't going to explain it. Cause you're not sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm not left with that feeling from this, uh, from this film. Yeah. I, I yeah, I'm not either, uh, but I think, I, th- I think you're right that he generally everything, maybe not everything, most everything in this world was accounted for. And just because we can't figure it out, it does feel like it is like solid. It feels like a a magic system that is well thought out and explained and not a hand wavy Mm. one. Yes. I like that. I like that uh, connection, but it's also so complex that in a single viewing, I don't, I don't get it, (laughs) but I, but I know it's there (laughs) and I appreciate that. Um, There was another quote that I saw when I was looking up some stuff. Roger Ebert said, the movie never looks cheap because every shot looks as it must. Uh, and I think that is a really astute observation. I mean, of course, it's coming from Roger Ebert, but about like the this is as low budget as it's possible to to yeah. be, and yet everything is exactly as it as it needs to be for. I would for almost film. almost take issue with that that it does look cheap. It doesn't look mm-hmm. seven thousand dollars cheap though. It yes. looks you know it looks couple million dollar budget cheap. <laughs> <laughs> compared to well, a giant well, blockbuster, what, you know? Maybe what Ebert is, is, is getting at, and, and this I think I agree with, it wouldn't be better if it looked higher quality. Uh, yeah. Like, the film would feel so different that it wouldn't be what we have. And what we have, everything is exactly what it needs to be there. Yeah. Even if it is not, as you said, like, a high budget. Like, clearly this is a low-grade film. Uh, and yeah. you do see some of the blurring. And I, I feel like maybe a couple times I even saw, like, the, uh, what do you call the... Uh, the circles where you where you're tacking together the two the two strips, you know that that appear and disappear. Oh, uh, I don't know. I think, what those I, I, think are I saw a couple of those. Uh, maybe not, but uh, it is like you feel the shoestringedness of how this was being made at times. There's at but least it's also one, what it should be. There's at least one place where you see the mic, the boom mic, and there's at mm. least one place where you see the sound guy's knee. But I only know that because it's pointed out by the director in the commentary. I, and I'm sure that's something he saw that. while editing the film that like yeah. drove him so crazy. <laughs> that there, almost made him give up. <laughs> the sound guy's knee, the sound guy told him that, Hey, my knee's in that shot. And he's like, it is. So even he, when he was editing it, didn't notice the sound guy's knee until the sound guy told him. But <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm always surprised sometimes like when there's a movie I've seen, many times that like you get on one of those internet lists of like, did you ever notice it? I'm like, Nope. The goofs. Never yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the goofs. And sometimes they're like, that's not a goof. <laughs> that's just, <laughs> the, 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 you know, the actor's wardrobe was a little, you know, you know, was a little disheveled. That's not a goof. <laughs> yeah. Um, you had a note uh, in in our our script for this episode, uh, where you said we don't know our future selves as much as we probably think we do. Neither character could think of a scenario where they could tell Granger, but clearly he found out somehow. Why do you think that is so important for this plot or for this film, particularly because we're never told how Granger found out? <laughs> like it is never yeah. addressed again as to what exactly happened here. 
Well, I think um, tied in, not only how did Granger find out, but it feels like the Aaron at the beginning, even though he is more impulsive, is so far removed from the Aaron at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is really interesting because it points out that uh, our, our circumstances can can lead us to do things that we might not think we would want to do, or we might not think at one point that we would like to do if we don't, if we aren't really morally grounded, if we don't like, if we don't stop and think about things like Abe does, I mean, Abe thinks about all this stuff so much that he can't fathom messing with anything other than, you know, making a little bit of money on the side. So, I mean, I guess he has, he has a point where our line that he'll cross, but he also has a line that he won't cross. And but also the way he's making money, it's not like he's figuring out how to rob a bank, right? Yeah. He's figuring out how to mani- manipulate a system that is legal and uh, and open. He just has a loophole, but he's still doing it the legal way. Mm-hmm. I guess the, 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 uh, the big thing that sticks out to me is uh, Abe is single in the movie. I kind of touched on it that Abe lived in an apartment and Aaron had a house and a wife and a child. We might not have mentioned the child in the summary. Um, they're mm-hmm. not prominent in the film, but... By the end, the Aaron that leaves is just like, no, I'm I'm going to, I don't know, rule the world, do do something, <laughs> and it, it, I guess he might think, oh, but there there's still there's still a version of me with my wife and child, they'll still be taken care of, but he doesn't seem to feel an attachment to them at all, and to me that is scary. Like, yes, can can we be so uh, drunk with power? that we abandon the people we love. I I think you can, if you're not Mm -hmm. careful. And I think that's one of the main cautionary tales lessons of this movie. Like uh, the, the quote you read earlier, like it's, it's too dangerous to use for anything else. (laughs) Not besides. Yeah. That is really a chilling finale. (laughs) And like you said, um, it's another thing that's a little, it was a little confusing, but I mean, you almost end up with, um, like the prestige, like multiple versions of these people running yeah. around. It's always just like, well, there's a version of me that will be with my job, but I don't need to be. It's like, Ooh, <laughs> that is. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and the way that we, we get that revelation of that. He's been there the whole time. It's like, you found out the supervillains in the house. <laughs> um, almost, you know, it's, it's uh, the, yeah, the real there's... threat has, has been inside with us this entire time. There's a scene where, um, they're eating breakfast and his wife says, Hey, have you called the exterminator uh, about the, the noises that we're hearing in the attic? And he's like, Oh honey, they're birds. Like you don't want a bunch of birds on your conscience, do you? And then I, again, I don't think I specifically said this in the summary, but he drugs himself, his double and hides him in the attic. That's him in the attic that is making the noises that he's telling his wife not to call the exterminator to, to come get. And it's just like, that's another one. You realize afterwards, you're just like, he is so far gone already. He's, um, le- he's letting himself be tortured, essentially. <laughs> like a version yeah. of him is being tortured up in the attic. Yeah, it's like he doesn't have a sense of, I, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a really weird question to think about. Like, what is your identity? Is that you? Are you torturing yourself at that point? Even if you're mm-hmm. not, you're torturing another sentient being. Maybe not torturing, but you're, you've captured and hid in the attic and drugged uh, a yeah. sentient being that happens to be you in every way. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's, can... a, 
It's a good callback that you don't realize at the time. It almost seems like a throwaway line, but like everything in this movie, everything is deliberate. There's, there's nothing that's throwaway. <laughs> they had to, he had to work at an editing for two years to make it work together. So there's <laughs> nothing that, that, you know, there's maybe some things that, that weren't exactly how he wanted them to be in the script. Cause it, they messed up or something, but everything there is, is deliberate. Um, once they make it through editing. Yeah. And I think, um, like even just talking it out, it's making me realize like how different the Aaron we meet at the beginning of the film is from the one we see in the French, uh, you know, engineering place, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. they're doing, you know, wherever he is doing that. Um, he really has been transformed and yet it's hard to like explain like the events he goes through, they're mind blowing, but they're also a bit mundane. <laughs> like what he's going through. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. Yes. He's discovered time travel. That is huge, but it's not like he's gone through a war, uh, you know, or, you know, or, uh, the, you know, a super volatile, uh, you know, emotionally charged transformative event. Uh, the way time travel is presented, it is mundane, uh, mm-hmm. in this. And yet it's that kind of siren call or lure of, of what this could be for him is making him make all these unethical choices and mm-hmm. essentially abandon his family, um, <laughs> you know, at, at, at the end, um, because he didn't give himself the kind of checks that Abe seemed to be giving himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, it, and, and tying it into the real world, I, I guess most of us probably won't have that, the kind of opportunity for the kind of, power or wealth to test that. But I feel like we still owe it to ourselves to think about those morals and ethics uh, ahead of time in case you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to name specific names cause I don't know anybody that's that rich or powerful, but mm-hmm. it makes me worried that like this, like, yeah, it's, it's scary, but it also seems plausible that, you know, maybe it's not time travel, but maybe it's the next big technology that's so disruptive that the person, you know, gets mega rich and powerful from it. But they probably, they, they were probably just trying to make something cool or make something to, to make some money and, you know, hoping that they got rich, but not fathoming that they would get as rich and powerful as they became. And I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question, but it makes me think about some, some real world technologies and real world people that, you know, we, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe I mean, they're in a similar situation. I mean, so, so many of, you know, the richest people on earth, it's within their lifetime, you know, it's, it's not always generational wealth <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's handed down. It's, they found, as you said, like disruptive technologies uh, that have become, we forget how disruptive they are because they're now the normal, right? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it becomes so commonplace that the, you know, the people behind those things can very often become fabulously wealthy. Um, and also be left with ethical considerations that were never on their radar when they were getting yeah. started. Um, and sometimes it may feel like they fumbled the ball in some of those ethical considerations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, I don't, I, yeah, not sure. I'm not sure they answered that question, but it and makes me is, think. Uh, <laughs> I, bet, I bet our listeners have different names flying through their heads right now. <laughs> and 
and probably different than anyone that we've we've been thinking about because oh that that fits a few people <laughs> idea yeah. and, um, and not just technology either i mean a, a, any kind of wealth and power in the world I, I think has this these same kind of implications that uh you you need you need to think about how to be responsible with whatever wealth or power you end up with in this world. Yeah. And like, what do you have like Abe, like some sort of framework that you're going to give yourself, whether Mm -hmm. it is, you know, morality you inherited from your parents, whether it's a religious framework, whether it's like a civic framework of what is right and wrong. Abe gives himself or, or leans into that framework in his decision-making and he doesn't even consider, or or if he does consider, he very quickly shuts down (laughs) some of the things that, uh, um, Aaron is not only willing to do, but actively does, uh, you know, by, by the end of the story. And so, like you said, uh, Abe, not only was he, I, I mean, they both seem like all right guys at the beginning of the story, but as Mm. soon as, he realizes the potential of what is before him. He makes this framework and Aaron kind of sees only opportunity, <laughs> right? Um, that, that, and he is willing to run headlong into, you know, what, whatever's going to increase the best opportunities in his mind, for, you know, for, for what opportunities or, or ah, I don't want to say the word again. Uh, <laughs> he's willing to ru- rush headlong in to achieve those things. Whereas Abe is always tapping the brakes and checking the side side view mirrors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even from the beginning, it's, it's, uh, it's Aaron that's uh, hacksawing the catalytic converter out from the car when Abe's like, wait, how come that's under there? If you can just take it out. And he's like, don't worry, your emissions just went up 3000% or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But we just, we need this. But but, but we need this. So we're going to do it. Cause, cause I, cause yeah. There's a lot of, (laughs) There's a lot of things like that, that, that subtly that I, I think in hindsight, I really love about this movie that I didn't notice for the first couple watches because they are hinting to you what kind of people these are. Like you said, the cautious and the impulsive one. And, uh, I think it's fine to be impulsive if, Mm -hmm. if we need some of those people. I mean, I'm generally a technology, despite what I just said (laughs) about, uh, technology and, uh, some things giving too much power. I'm a, technological optimist, if that's what the thing's called, or I, I generally think that increasing mm-hmm. technology makes the world a better place. Um, but, and we need a lot of those people that are willing to, to just willing and able, and that's their mindset to go headlong and, and make those technological breakthroughs. I think just like I've said earlier, what we, what we need to do at the same time is have a moral framework ahead of time, because if you try to come up with one afterwards, it's too late. And uh, you've got to know where you're like the temptation is going to make you bend. And uh, Abe very much knows, like, if I take these steps, I'm, I'm bending too far and I, I, I will just keep going. And Aaron is like, let's go. <laughs> let's, let's run on it. Yeah. Let's do um, this. Yes. Uh, there's another note you had that I thought was kind of interesting. You say you like the story of the film, but the production makes it more interesting. Can you expand on that just a little uh, bit? Just just the story of the, the no budget, um, the, I, the, I feel like the story of the making of the film is, is a great secondary story to the story of the film. Um, 
I mean, he, I, th- I think, uh, Carruth, the writer, director guy, um, I think he was still working as, uh, an engineer at the time of filming and editing this and was basically moonlighting doing it. All the actors worked for free. Uh, the credits say that all the food was provided by his parents. I don't remember their names, but that's one of one of the like twelve lines in the credits is all food provided by the Caru the Caruths, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and uh, yeah, just the fact that they they were able to do so much with so little is really I feel like inspiring to artists, to technologists, to you know anybody who has a dream of something that they want to create, even if they. F- you feel like you don't have enough to do it, like work within your constraints and you can still make something great. I think that's a great takeaway from this movie that isn't directly related to the story as it's written and presented, but is related to the story of the making of the film. Yeah. I like that. And it is always interesting. Like when you come across what feels like those like super success, success stories where like the, um, the obstacles or, or the constraints feel overwhelming and yet they managed to do it right. They managed mm-hmm. to make it, um, you know, something like, uh, the Napoleon dynamite film is, you know, is another one that had a much bigger return because it became, uh, you know, mainstream success in a way primer hasn't, but it was just kind of like, Hey, film school buddies, <laughs> anyone that's around and willing to come work for free, let's go make a movie. And they did. I mean, and then somehow it became, um, I, for a while it had the record for, the biggest, um, you know, difference between, you know, multiplication of initial budget to, to profit, even though it's not like a Marvel movie in terms of the box office, but Marvel movies starting budget is so much astronomically beyond what Napoleon Dynamite had. And that, like you said, it's kind of inspiring for, for whatever it is that you want to make <laughs> that, Oh, you know, you, you actually can, you don't have to have, uh, access beyond all those gatekeepers that feel like they're, they're saying no and stop and you can't. Yeah. Uh, and for anyone, just a nice tidbit, Napoleon Dynamite is actually a contemporary film to this. I think it might've been shown at the same Sundance film festival. Um, and just as a point of comparison, I don't know the exact numbers, but I believe Napoleon Dynamite's budget was somewhere between 400 and $500,000, which, which yeah. is nothing for a film. Yeah. And yet it, this was, is, and it was all loans and yeah, it, there was yeah. no studio behind it. It was all just everyone maxing out anything that they could get their hands on. <laughs> yeah. But you can see the difference in the film quality. Uh-huh. Yeah. But just, it's, it's like you hear $7,000 and if you're not really familiar with film budgets, you're like, Oh, $7,000. I wouldn't mind having $7,000, but $7,000 is like a drop in the bucket compared to half a million, which is already a film made just like bootstrapping it basically. And yeah. so, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just interesting to compare the two because they're contemporaries. Yeah. They're, they're both mega independent, but this one's mega, mega independent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, even the size, like Napoleon Dynamite actually has credits, you know, whereas this is yeah. just, ah, Caruth did everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like there, there was a full crew uh, that, that was working on Napoleon Dynamite and you don't feel like that was necessarily the case on primer. Um, all right. Well, the final thing that I think we want to touch on you had in your notes is the idea that this movie accounts for space as well as time. Um, in what way do you see it doing that? So uh, 
the way that he explains it in the director's commentary is that in Back to the Future, the DeLorean goes back to the 50s, which is fine. You know, it's time, it's a time travel movie. I love Back to the Future. But the planet and the universe and the galaxy are constantly moving. And so if you were to just go back in time and be in the same place, you would end up in the middle of outer space, not in the same neighborhood. And the yeah, way it's that- not even just that the earth has, or, you know, would be in a different point in its orbit around the sun where the sun is and the whole solar system have moved on in those 50 years. Yeah. But primer accounts for that by making time travel linear. If you're going to go six hours one way, you have to go six hours back the other way. There's no skipping around. And so as you're moving from one end of the loop to the other, you're moving in space as well, which I think is kind of interesting and something that I had never thought of just in terms of time travel. But uh, See, I've, I've it, heard that argument about time travel, about how, yeah, you, like the location would be so drastically different and i always i think i initially was thinking about it of like the rotation of the earth and like oh no wait actually the earth will be in a different place in the solar system mm-hmm. and now i realize no everything is so vastly different that if you really travel to the exact same physical point in the universe but back you know however far you see in time travel movies it's not like you're gonna see dinosaurs right <laughs> you're, you're see a you're whole be, lot of nothing yeah, exactly <laughs> and distant stars uh i'm still not sure i can wrap my head around the linear movement of like the between the point a and b in the six hours and how that is accounting for space. It feels like something that advanced physics is explaining that is beyond my grasp. It, I mean, it's fiction. So (laughs) it's, it's a, to me, it's a a fictional explanation that sounds semi plausible, but obviously, well, I don't know about obviously, I don't think it actually works. (laughs) Well, no, but I will say like, there's plenty of advanced physics that are saying, like, oh, our conception of time is not what we we seem to think it is. <laughs> like, the way we perceive it is probably not what's yeah. actually going on uh, in, in the universe. Um, I don't I know, don't know enough. how to wrap my head around some of those ideas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like, don't I know get... enough. Oh, go ahead. I don't know enough to be able to say whether this representation actually lines up with what those advanced physicists are saying. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know what? They threw in enough jargon. I'm willing to say, hey. Okay, they're 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 at least taking a swing at it. <laughs> I did yeah. like there's something about the way they present that, like moving between point A and B, and and swinging back and forth, and then exiting at the A instead of the B. That like it feels like I'm grasping it until I stop and really think about it. Like it feels like it makes sense, and I stop and think about it. I'm like, wait, does it does that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's for me like good pseudoscience. <laughs> like it just sounds plausible enough that if I'm not trying to really grasp it, I can, I can just move right along with the story. Yeah. As soon as I do start to think about it, I start to feel like there's something more going on than what I understand. And so maybe there's, I mean, there's so much advanced science that is so far beyond <laughs> me that yeah. I can just say, okay, it's that. Um, then there's sometimes where you get in time travel movies or other things where you're just like, that is lame. <laughs> that is not a real explanation uh, at all. And this is somehow writing that line very well for me. Yeah. Uh, this uh, I feel like is the best, like serious time travel movie, uh, which we've said before back to the future is a great fun time travel movie, but it's but not, uh, not a serious. No, <laughs> this is the best hard sci-fi version of time travel, <laughs> which is very weird to say that there's a hard sci-fi version of time travel. 
Yeah, um, I guess but, I'm not even sure I know what that means, but if <laughs> it's making the effort to work with science as we as we understand it, <laughs> yeah. extrapolate from that, you do have to extrapolate fiction, you know, with fiction. Uh, yeah. But it's not just, you know, uh, what what's Doc Brown line? How many gigawatts <laughs> does he say? One point twenty one gigawatts. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's one of those lines that just really sings, but is nonsense <laughs> for explaining why DeLorean is going back in time. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you, John, for coming on and also for recommending this film that I had not yet seen. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. Please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Um, in, in that is that, oh, hold on. I'm trying to grasp the thought. <laughs> oh, it was something you were just saying about Napoleon Dynamite. Ah, I'm sorry, Andrew. You're probably gonna have to cut this follow up. Something you had said triggered a thought and I wanted to share it. And now it is gone.